Well, good morning, church. Glad you're here. Before I begin, let me ask you a question. Do, uh, do you like the, the foyer in the rock, do you? Well, how's that? Good. I was out of town last week, and if you didn't like it, I was going to tell you that Don and Bubba did that while I was gone, and I didn't know anything about it, but if you liked it, I was going to tell you I told them to do it before I left, amen? <laughs> it looks good, doesn't it? I've, <laughs> I appreciate it. I tell you, Bubba and Sidekick Larry, uh, they can do anything, and I appreciate what they do. I want you to take your Bible this morning, and I hope you brought the Word of God with you. I want to encourage you to go to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, okay? Philippians, chapter 4, I hope you brought the Bible. Every week, gang, I don't know what else to do except say, take your Bible and open the Bible. And so I want to encourage you every week. To, to take your Bible. You may say, well, I don't know where the books are. There's an index in the front that has a page number. Go there, because it's important that we take the Bible and open the Bible. Or if you have an f- iPhone, uh, I'm doing that now. Uh, open your iPhone. <laughs> Turn the iPhone. I don't know what you do with an iPhone, but you get on the Bible, okay? And I, wanna, I want us to look at some verses in Philippians chapter 4. Again, I want to talk to you on a very serious subject this morning. We've been in a series called Resolved, Making 2013 Spiritually Successful. I want to close that out this morning. Not sure where we're headed yet. God will give us direction. But I want to close that out this morning on the theme of real joy, the meeting of real joy. And I believe if we're going to have a good year together, I believe that if you're going to handle some of the challenges that come, then I think it's very important that you have a good perspective, a right perspective, maybe I I should say a biblical perspective on what the real meaning of joy is. Now, most of us can think back a few years, 2008, on the economic shakedown that our nation went through. It was a time of very intense crisis for many. For some, it was an insurmountable obstacle. We are told that the chief financial officer, Freddie Mac, the Home Lending Institute guy, he couldn't handle all the pressure. And we're told that he went in down into the basement of his house and he hanged himself. We're told that the head man of a leading real estate firm couldn't handle all of the downturns, so he went out and got behind the wheel of a red Jaguar and he shot himself. A money manager lost $1.4 billion of his client's money, and he couldn't handle it, and so he killed himself. A Bear Stearns executive, when he found out that as their companies merged, he wouldn't be hired on, couldn't handle the pressure. He took a drug overdose. He jumped off a 29th floor story building, to his death. One guy, his friend said, he ju- it just broke his spirit. Why would people who live in the United States of America, why would people, when we look at their life and see how they move and shake, what would make people take their life, destroy their life, end their life on something that we as believers in Christ know is not eternal. 
Where have we missed that? What is going wrong there? Through the years, I've had the, the, the sad occasion to bury several who had taken their lives. It, it's like they seemed unable to cope with life. And so my question today is, what's gone wrong with the definition of success in our country? Somehow has it been perverted? Has it been diluted? Could it be that somehow in the course of our lives, we've taken this biblical truth of what real joy is, and we've allowed it to be mixed in with wrong things, things that if we lose, we don't even want to live. Now listen, gang, all of us has sorrows in our life, right? All of us have shed tears. All of us have been grabbed by something sudden that just knocks the props out from underneath us, and we're not even sure how we're going to move tomorrow, but tomorrow comes. What is it that makes Christians, or at least Christians who understand the Bible teaching of joy, what makes us continue on? Why would people who seem to have everything, when they lose what they think is everything, snuff out their life? Could it be that we have lost the real meaning of real joy? That it has become polluted, or at least diluted? Back in the 1830s, there was a French philosopher by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. He came to America to, to search out the greatness of America. You may have heard of the guy. He, he's the guy that says that he came to search out America's greatness, and he discovered that America was great because America was good. And if America ever ceased to be good, then America would cease to become great. He was the guy who said that he searched for the greatness of our nation and he found it in the churches of Jesus Christ. He also wrote something else that not many people know about. What's often not shared are these words. Back in 1830, so this has been around for a long time, gang, he said a strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants in the midst of their abundance. Did you catch that? A strange melancholy haunts the inhabitants in the midst of their abundance. And then he went on and he concluded with these words, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. In my years of preaching, my years of ministry. I don't know this French guy. I don't know whether he was a believer, frankly. I don't know if he understood the things of God at all. But I'll tell you what he did. He said the right thing here. The incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And so what I've decided to do today is to conclude our series on this idea of joy and my prayer is that we can get our head around it a little bit. Let me tell you 
Philippians 4, where, what's happening. Paul, and by the way, Paul's in prison. His life is drawing to a close. He knows that his ministry is drawing to a close. And yet he takes a letter to a wonderful church, and the whole letter just permeates. It's saturated with the idea of joy. Now, if he's going to be a joyful guy, and if he's writing about joy, but he knows his life is ending, and he knows his ministry is drawing to a close, then maybe he has some things for us that we can grab hold of. And he's writing this letter to a, a, a dear church, a church at Philippi. That was a church that was a wonderful church, but it was a church that was very poor and in destitute poverty. It was a church that Paul uh, acknowledged from time and again that, that would give him money to help him. It was a church that he used as an example of to other churches in giving. In fact, I, I used it a few weeks ago. But for some reason, Paul, the agent, some reason Paul, as he begins to wind down his life in ministry, feels some kind of urge to write a letter to this church. Obviously, you know, the Holy Spirit was leading him, but it makes me wonder why. Could it be that Paul was sensing something from the Holy Spirit that something just wasn't just quite right in the church? That maybe there were some little factions beginning? We in Baptist terms call those cliques. Maybe there were some cliques beginning to happen. Paul had heard that there were two ladies who labored with him in the gospel, worked hard in sharing of the Lord Jesus, and they were at odds with one another. And so he knew that, of course, when relationships go sour, the church takes a hit, the relationships of others begin to suffer, the testimony of the Lord Jesus, and the testimony of the church begins to struggle as well. I don't know what was going on with Paul. I don't know what other than the Holy Spirit prompting him, but something was happening within the relationships in that church. It could have been husband-wife relationships. Man, I'll tell you, marriage is tough today. I, it's taken me 40-something years to get my wife in line, you know? So maybe it was some of that stuff going on. Maybe the Sunday school teachers weren't getting along with their pupils. I don't Maybe it was the youth ministry. Youth guys are weird anyway, you know. Maybe they were singing the wrong kind of song. Something was going on. And he wrote this letter, and he wrote a letter about joy. In fact, we're going to look at a few verses in chapter 4. Let me just tell you, he's already mentioned the word joy seven times when he gets to chapter 4. He's commanded them to rejoice six times. And in chapter 4, he issues them a command, and then he repeats the command, which is pretty important. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? Chapter 4, and let's read together verses 1 through 7. And let me tell you how I want to handle it. I I just want to lift out from these verses three things this morning to talk to you about, okay? Some maybe hopefully practical things. And then when I'm through with that, I want, to, I want us to camp on a phrase that I believe is strategically important. If we're going to get a, our head around joy in the midst of the challenges that we face in life, okay? 
Let's begin verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm and notice in the Lord, my beloved. I'm going to come back to that. I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche. Those two names are enough to make people fight, right? To live in harmony, how? Say it. In the Lord. Twice already. Indeed, true, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. These were gospel people. I mean, they weren't just pew sitters. They were good news sharers, okay? Together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. And here, here's verse 4 where we're going to be. Rejoice where? In the Lord. Always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit, it means your, uh, um, um, what? Uh, what's your Bible have? What? Moderate spirit, gentle, kind, balanced. And the word I'm wanting, I can't get in my brain, so just say gentle spirit. Be known. It'll come about the end of the message. Be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request, that's prayer here, let your request be made known to God. And then he says, and then when all of this takes place, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father, help me today to share with those I love in the midst of the pressures that we have in this world and in this life, there's something more important. There's something beyond what the world would define as success or what the world might even define as joyful. And that is a relationship with Jesus Christ in the Lord that was birthed not by us and our own actions, but was birthed according to the will of God. And Father, if we can somehow get a little bit of it, if we somehow can get our head around a little bit of it, then we can handle what life brings, because what life brings is really not eternal. Paul understood that. I hope his people did, that he wrote to. God, I hope we can this day in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks. Be seated. I want you to keep your Bible open, and I want you to look with me in verse 4. Okay, The first thing that I, I jotted down that I think is very important if we're going to understand joy is this. Joy is a decision. It is not an emotion. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul writes this as a command. It's not optional. Paul's not writing as an urge. I'm urging you to rejoice. Paul doesn't write it as a beg. He's, uh, he doesn't even say, I'm begging you to rejoice. Paul says, you rejoice. And, 
In, in grammar, it's called a, a present tense verb, which has the force of, I command that you continually rejoice and you keep on rejoicing. The Holy Spirit to the church at Philippi and the Holy Spirit to the church of Indian Springs today commands the people of God not to rejoice when you feel like it. Not to rejoice when your 401, is it a 401k? Goes up. Or when the stock market jumps up. He commands that we who are the people of God rejoice and we must keep on rejoicing. And so what Paul is saying to them and to us is that joy can never be circumstantial. Joy can never be situational. Remember, Paul's in prison. He's dying. His ministry's drawing to a close. Now, he understands, and he desires us to understand, that joy is supernatural. It's dependent upon the nature and the character of God. And dear people, that may be a quick statement to you. But I want you to know that's a profound statement, or it should be profound to you. That joy can never be circumstantial. It can never be situational. Joy must be supernatural. That means that joy is tied very strongly, strategically to the nature and the character of God. Joy can't be external. It can't be caused by nor sustained by something outside of God. Joy is different than happiness. Happiness is external. It depends upon the moment of time and the circumstance of life. Happiness is feeling driven. It almost becomes like a roller coaster of emotions. But all dear people, joy comes from deep within the soul, birthed by the Spirit of God. And so I want to, if I can command you, I will. I certainly want to urge you, don't you let Satan, Make your joy circumstantial. This past week, I, uh, I was in a Bible conference, and I, uh, I began to feel like you feel. The preacher was boring, and my, eye, my mind began to drift. You, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and I, uh, I did what our teenagers do. I pulled out my smartphone, kids. I, you know, when you pull out your smartphone, I think you're not listening. I realize that you are multitasking. So I was trying to, with this ear, hear a boring guy talk, but my mind was coming back to today, knowing that I was going to have to stand up and talk about joy. So while this guy was blabbing, I was, I was typing. Do you guys have Evernote? In your apps, you, have no, you need to get Evernote. I was typing in my, in my phone, and let me tell you what I typed in, and I believe it's true. True joy is not something that's happening. True joy is something that happened. Think about that. True joy is not what's going on in your life right now, kids. True joy is something that happened 2,000 years ago, people. 
When the Lord Jesus died upon a cross for the sin of the world. When God was pleased to sacrifice his son for sin. And slay his son for sin. And he died so that you might have life eternal. You see, joy can never be an emotion. Joy must be a decision. The second thing I jotted down, look at verse 6. Joy is a prayer you offer, not an agenda you manipulate. Look at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. Let me put it this way. Prayer is dumping it on God and leaving it with God to sort out as he wills it. Prayer is taking your issue, taking your problem. Wives, it's taking your husband and dumping it on God and letting God deal with him as he wills. You see, biblical joy must stem from a right theology. We're living in a man-centered age, not a God-centered doctrinal age. We're living in an I am it age, and everything we hear and read and see on TV is about me. Beloved, that's narcissism at its highest. But when someone prays and truly prays right, they're transferring their fears and their cares over to sovereignty. And it is at that point that God assumes control of you externally. And God begins to produce joy internally into your life. You read the Bible character, the great characters of the Bible. Guys, listen, they, had, they didn't have just wonderful great days, you know. Let me tell you, I, you read the book of Acts, Paul, the apostle Paul, never had a great hair day. He didn't. Everywhere Paul went, they were chunking rocks. Everywhere he went, they were tying them up and whipping them. Every time he got on a boat, there was a stinking storm out there getting ready to douse them. Paul never had a great hair day. But Paul had joy. And Paul was able to write to these dear people in deep poverty and much distress about biblical joy. You read the history of, of, of Christian um, leaders over years gone by, you know what you find? You find they were continually buffeted by a world system that was set opposed to God. Read about Martin Luther. I'm reading about John Knox. Man, Luther, Knox, uh, 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 John Calvin. All those guys knew that suffering for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ was a way of life. But in their theology, they knew that it came from God. Let me tell you, they knew that everything that ever happened in their life was ordained by God. They even knew, and allow me to use this term and don't be frightened by it. They knew that every event, every circumstance, every situation they would ever incur was predestined to happen to them by a sovereign God. And that was good enough for them. Now that doesn't mean they didn't cry. Paul talked about tears. That doesn't mean they didn't have tragedies. That didn't mean that they didn't have crisis in their life. But they know that whatever befell them came from the hand of a loving, gracious 
God. Their belief was in the nature and the character of God. Their theology squared up, you see. When my daddy died in that tornado, that wasn't a good day in my life. He was my daddy. I talked to him almost every single day. I didn't brush my teeth without asking him about it, you know. And then all of a sudden, in a whirlwind, God carried him away. And there was a moment that we crashed. There was a moment I fell on my face in the carpet, didn't even know how tomorrow was going to come. And then all of a sudden, something happened. I knew where he was. I knew what Jesus Christ had done for him. I knew that he belonged to the family of God. And my theology took over. And I realized that God, you can say aloud, I'm going to tell you, God sent that tornado to get my dad out of this world. And I submit to you, that was a whole lot better than laying on a bed slowly dying, huh? You see, these great men of the Bible, these great men of biblical history, they knew that whatever befailed them, whatever came in their life, was ordained and predestined to their life by a holy, righteous God. They prayed, they dumped it, and they gave it to Him. And they went on to life, or they went on to death. And it's amazing to me, as I read the accounts of these martyrs, how they could go to a cross or how they could go to a stake, or how they could go to a beheading, praising the name of God, that they were considered worthy to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a third thing that I jotted down. Look at verse 7 for just a moment. He concludes it, and the peace of God, which is beyond understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Joy is a virtue that you receive not a product that you purchase. That's what verse 7 is saying to us. Galatians 5, we, we talk about fruit of the Spirit, that which is produced by God in believers' lives, in, in our sanctification as we begin to, to grow in the Lord, as we begin to mature in the Lord, as God takes us from point A to point B in our Christian experience, in our Christian maturity. There's some things that get produced in us and it comes out of us. The fruit of the Spirit, it's called, and some of that is love. God takes hard, mean people, turns them into loving people. Love. I came home from Orlando, I saw my wife. I said, honey, I love you. That was kind of like y'all green. No, uh, I love you. you know? That's produced by God. Some of you hard-headed rascals, what makes you so teary-eyed today? The Spirit of God takes that old life, makes them soft. See, policemen. Joy. Yeah, joy. In the midst of hell, and everything's falling apart. And the world is crashing. What's being done in my heart? Joy. A product of the supernatural. Peace and all those other things. You see, dear people, you cannot manufacture this. You can't purchase this. This virtue was purchased for you by someone else. And if all hell breaks loose in your life and you think you've lost everything, you realize you've not lost everything. 
You still have that which is most important. Those poor guys that I gave that illustration about and those poor dear people that I've had to do those services for, they didn't understand that when you lose everything, you've not lost everything. If you have Jesus, if he is your Lord and your Savior, if he is the God of your life, your theology, dear people, must hold firm. And I'm convinced the reason so many Christians today struggle in so many ways is because our theology of God is so weak. That's one reason why at this gospel project we're starting in Sunday school, it may be challenging to teach a little bit, teachers, but I want to tell you it's strategically important in your life because it teaches our right theology. I've gotten, by the way, if you don't go to Sunday school, you ought to come at least for the next three months because you might find there's something about God that you're going to learn that's going to carry you over the next bump that's going to come in your life. Well, what's the key? What's the key? Well, I mentioned it as I was reading. It's that little phrase in the Lord. Chapter 3, Paul mentions it. He speaks about rejoicing in the Lord. Here in chapter 4, four times, he uses that phrase, in the Lord. He concludes it with, in Christ Jesus. It's a favorite theme of the Apostle Paul, and it's critical that you and I understand it. It's critical that we get our head around what in the Lord really means. Let me give you three things, three points here, and then we're through. Number one, it means that you must be saved by God. And know that salvation is by God. You can't think you're saved. You can't hope that you're saved. You see, the fruit of Christianity cannot grow apart from the life of Christ. And salvation is that which God places within you and brings you to the point where you repent and believe. Now listen to me very carefully. Because I think... So many people in so many of our churches across our great nation, and I believe so many people in so many Baptist churches across our great nation does not quite fully understand salvation does not, never will, cannot come from the will of man. But you, when you read the scriptures, you find that salvation is birth by the will of God. You find it is God that moves upon the heart first. You find that it is God that convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. You find that it is God that brings and draws a person to repentance and faith. That's why the Bible says it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And somehow in our mind, we talked about it in Sunday school today, somehow in the mind of man, they still think they got to do this or they got to do that for God to give them favor and accept them. Oh, no, brother, you do what you do because of what you received from the hand of a gracious, kind, loving, convicting, sovereign God. And you got to get that right or you'll never understand joy. You'll never see joy function when the times of trials come. The second thing, point number two, you must understand that in salvation, God not only takes away your guilt of sin, 
Not only do you receive a pardon from sin, but you must understand that God grants you his righteousness. I think I've mentioned to you, I certainly mentioned it again in my Sunday school class, that I've spent most of my preaching life preaching about the beauty of forgiven sin. How beautiful it is that Christ would die and Christ would lift off that penalty and that burden of sin. And that's true, isn't it? Isn't that true? Man, it's great to know that the penalty and the burden of sin has been lifted away. But let me tell you where I've been a little remiss. It's because of my ignorance. I'm just now in my old age beginning to understand the beauty that there's another part to salvation. Not only does he take away the the guilt and the penalty of sin, but he infuses into you, he imputes into you, he deposits into you his righteousness. Now, you know what that means, dear Christian? It means that you are accepted 100% by God. Regardless of how life is, regardless of the decisions you make, that's very important when when the world dumps on you. Because the first thing I think and the first thing you probably think is, what did I do wrong? Why did I deserve this? No, listen, when you're saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus, he imputes into you his righteousness. You're accepted 100% in the family of God. God is 100% in your camp. He's on your side. He's the one who placed you in the family of the beloved. Whatever happens to you is family business that comes from the patriarch, Almighty God. And that leads me to point number three. Number three, you must understand that if God is sovereign in grace and that he has saved you, then whatever befalls you is in accordance to that which he has ordained to come to pass in your life. In the Lord is a phrase that places every event, every circumstance, every trial, and every tragedy inside the blessed will of the Father. That's where you'll find the meaning of, that's why you'll be able to live with true joy. Like I said, those poor people, though when the economic collapse came, they didn't understand it. And those poor people that I have had to bury over the years, who took their life before time, never understood that God's in control and God will see you through and God will direct your life and God will meet the needs that you have, that it's not your strength, it's His strength that carries you through some of the challenges, some of the trials, and even some of the tragedies that everybody faces in this world. There's a phrase that haunts me. If you have your Bible, and I think, yeah, we have some time. Turn to Hebrews 12 real quickly. Um, There's a phrase here that's haunted me all of my Christian life. Now, I just want to read a couple verses, and then I'm through, and we'll close out. Hebrews chapter 12. The writer, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Whoever it was, I guess we could say God wrote it. Chapter 12, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside 
every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now notice, for the joy set before him. That's the phrase that haunts me. The joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, set down on the right hand of the throne of God. That phrase ought to, ought to capture our heart and our mind. The joy set before him. Because of what was before him, what was coming, what he knew was going to happen, the Bible said he endured. That word endure means to stay under. He stayed under the cross. He drank my fullness of sin. He despised the shame. The word despised is a mind word. He set his head, his mind, against the shame that he was enduring because he knew that joy in the presence of God. He knew that following the Father's will to the completion would be worth it all. For the Father's good pleasure, he knew he should die for those that he saves, for those that he loves. Now, gang, I said earlier, all of us are going to have sorrow in this life, but we need not despair. The Bible says joy comes in the morning. Sorrow is for the moment. Joy comes in the, in the morning. Despair is when you think you've lost that which is most important and you can't live on. Despair is not a word in the Christian vocabulary. Sorrow, yes. Despair, no. Like De Tocavelli said, it's a strange melancholy. It's an incomplete joy of this world. But all oh, dear people, listen. In Jesus Christ, darkness has turned to light. In Jesus Christ, deadness is turned to life. And when you know that, and when you're assured of that, then no matter what happens, the joy of God will sustain you. And the joy of God will carry you. Because of who God is. Now let me ask you this. Is he your God? Is he? Do you know for certain that he lives within your heart? Do you understand? Oh, dear people, do you understand? He died on a cross because of your sin. He rose victorious to give you life. And I believe he's packing his bags, getting ready to come to get his church. Is he that kind of Lord for you? I want us to pray. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, help us. Help us today to know who you are, to realize who you are, to realize what you've done and what you've given in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Stu, come on down.